Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual. As part of my research into grief, I've come to know grief can be isolating and community is essential to explore, survive, and heal with grief. I co-facilitate the Pause, Breathe, Restore retreats, along with wellness coach Erin Vanderkort. We help people engage and move forward with grief in a safe, supportive, and healing community. Our next grief retreat will be held at the Oregon Coast, October 3rd through 6th. Information about this retreat can be found at pausebreatherestore.com and in our show notes. Gratitude and Greatness explores our relationship with grief, the gratitude for our humanity, and the greatness we attain when we tell our stories. I'm your host, Sarah Shaul. Rebecca Van Pelt, or the brave one, as her cape reads, is a mother of four children who transformed the birthday gift of a cape into a daily uniform, as both redefining herself and a comforting cloak, countering her childhood trauma. I speak with Rebecca about her unusual childhood and how she embraces a path to healing. I had no, I mean, I don't know if anybody does, has any idea what you're getting into when you choose to have children. You can think you have a lot of knowledge around it. My experience is it's a crazy free fall and you can read all the books you want, but every child's different and the time in history is different and (laughs) there's just so many different factors who you're potentially co-parenting with etc so i have these four wild beautiful children and want to give them a voice and freedom and yet i can only handle so much craziness and chaos personally so it's this balance of trying to have some order and roles and and yet allow them to be creative and imaginative. Question, I think, okay, yeah, we have this rule, but if you have a good debate, bring it on. Let's talk about it. Honestly, one of my first memories of my little boy, I mean, he didn't actually talk for quite a while. And when he did start talking, one of the first things he said to us was, can we just talk about this? Because <laughs> he was like, we think we're going to be negotiating with you for the rest of your life. <laughs> I have a lawyer in my in my household as well. Yeah, yeah I know. I'm saving up for law school. <laughs> nice. <laughs> which which makes me happy that I'm not having to worry about him later. But oh my gosh, right? The day to day like oh, questioning I, and yeah, yeah, I need I my own little my own representative. <laughs> speak to my exactly, speak to my speak lawyer. To my attorney. <laughs> I grew up in a super controlled, strict environment. There was protocols for just about everything and a correct way and an incorrect way to do things and behave and respond. I'm a firstborn, probably fairly type A. So in some ways I really complied and in other ways I really bucked that system eventually. So your parents met in a cult. Mm -hmm. My parents will call it that now and they don't call it that then, I suppose. But they met and kind of had an arranged marriage there and then had me a couple years later. Their marriage was arranged? Yeah. 
Are they still together? They are still together, which blows my mind. I guess they've been, I don't know, married 47, 48 years, something like that. Yeah, kind of crazy. It was 70s hippie commune mixed with very conservative Christianity is my understanding of it. It was a bunch of college-age kids. Everybody, you know, lived communally and nobody got paid for any of the 14, 16-hour days that they were working on this farm. So they had a really successful farm and produce stand and actually restaurants and pie shops. Where was this? It was in rural Colorado. Wow. My mom has baked thousands of pies and my dad was the resident woodworker. So he made all the furniture for the pie shops and taught himself woodworking there, which he's continued to do now for most of his life. So at least they learned something. There. Yes. Though my mom won't bake pies. She refuses. <laughs> She's over that. That's her trauma. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She makes one for my dad on his birthday and one at Christmas. So that's it. You grew up in this commune slash cult. I was there till I was six. And my parents, basically, I would say they fled in the middle of the night, yeah, borrowed a car, left in the middle of the night. It wasn't okay to leave. You know, you were out of the fold and sinning or I don't know. <laughs> Something like that. So we pretty much had nothing. We went and lived with some friends because, I mean, they had no money, no no belongings. So obviously they recognized this was not a healthy... Eventually. I mean, I think they were there over a decade. Dang. Yeah. So was it just you? Did you have a sibling too? Yep. By the time we left, I had a younger brother. He was about two when we left. What's really fascinating to me is you say that you had this strict childhood, mm -hmm. but the idea of living in a, well, should I call it a cult or a commune? I don't know. My mom called it a cult, so. A cult, I could see being more strict than, say, a, a commune. commune. Yeah, I right? think you're right. Yeah. So I can see, because you say you grew up with these very rigid mm -hmm. expectations of what was right and wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So what was life like when you left? I mean, did your parents feel like they were on the run the whole time? Or I don't think so. I, You know, they moved several states away. I've honestly never really heard if anybody pursued them or sent them letters or if they told anybody where they were going. They tended towards other forms of rigid, structured environments. So, you know, they left the cult. We, while we all had our own places to live, it was still a pretty enmeshed community I think. And then they've kind of continued to gravitate towards kind of that sort of structure even all these years later. I mean, it's definitely mellowed out, but. If you were six when you left, I mean, you were just becoming school age. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, I got to go to public school even when we were still living on what we called the farm. And then they left halfway through my kindergarten year. So then I transitioned to another kindergarten. Okay. So the, the cult was called the farm. Uh, I think it was called Mercy Farm, but shortened to The Farm. So the rest of your childhood, did you notice a significant change when you left the farm? Or did you feel like some of those same tenants were being observed as you were being raised? My parents were there for at least a decade. So certainly a lot of that brainwashing, ingraining, whatever you want to call it, has stuck with them. Mm. For sure, say through high school or whatever, it was still very strict, very structured. And I would say they're still pretty intense in their beliefs. But in the last 10 years, maybe, you're a different person every decade, I would say, in some capacities, as we flourish and grow or regress or, you know, all the different life circumstances that happen to us that kind of shape us. 
I'm a different parent in my 40s than I was in my 30s. And I think when we're children, we don't know any different. This is what this being is a normal. child is. Yeah. So at what point did you look back and say, hmm? I think there was pieces that I always knew were different. So I went to various schools all through elementary school. And then at junior high, my parents decided to homeschool me. So I, you know, here I am 13. It was probably the first time where I was really, oh man, I'm like the weirdo. When you're 13, don't we all feel like weirdos at yeah, 13? I think it's true. I'm assuming you saw yourself as even more different than maybe your average 13-year-old. I did. I mean, there wasn't a lot of people homeschooling at that time. You know, it's more of a semi-mainstream option now. This was super new concept. So I think generally when people asked where you went to school and you said you homeschooled, it was like they didn't even know what that was. The way we ate. We just had all these different like things where like my mom would send me to birthday parties with an apple and I wasn't allowed to have sugar. <laughs> oh, I see. Like, kind of layers on layers of being odd. I was liked. I wasn't the outcast at all. I kind of rolled with it and was able to make that, take it and make it your unique thing and make it funny and whatever. Tell everybody that you're going to live longer than them or something like that, you know. <laughs> so, or be smarter so, I mean, that's probably kind of my first awareness. And then, like, I was 13. My mom was having a baby. I mean, you know, there's just a lot of, you know, all my friends are, like, my age and maybe have one other sibling or, you know, some, your mom's having a kid. What? <laughs> so, there was a lot of little things that kind of added up. I mean, I think I ended up, you know, being the helper, <laughs> ah. the take care of the baby person. I mean, sometimes when I think about the responsibility then that I kind of took on with my sister, Especially being homeschooled. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I remember my parents leaving for like a week. She was probably two or something, but still. Wait, they left you in charge of a two-year-old while they went where for a week? Actually, they came to Oregon to decide to move here. But yeah. So wait, you were 15? I was like 15. I mean, I think there was some adult supervision. So it wasn't just me, but I really was the one like taking care of her. That's interesting. Yeah, in charge. How long were you homeschooled for? The rest of my junior high and high school. Did you go off to college? I waited a year. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. My parents, they didn't push college. Like, what, what did they envision for you? My dad always had his own kind of businesses. And I think it was always like, have your own business, be self-sufficient. So in that sense, that was good. I mean, I started having my own businesses from the time I was 13. Like what? Well, I took calligraphy lessons like most people might take piano lessons or voice lessons or do a sport. I did it weekly and practiced daily. And so I was quite a good calligrapher by the time I was 13. So I would do wedding invitations and frame poems and go to craft shows and sell cards. That's awesome at 13. I love it. So I think that was kind of the vein. They were like, find something you're good at and do that. And I actually didn't leave home till I was 26. It was maybe similar to my parents leaving the farm. Like it was frowned upon. I was not encouraged. There was definitely a live at home till you get married. Were they bringing like suitors over? Rebecca. A little bit. Yeah. And pretty much every guy I brought home was terrified. (laughs) They were like, oh, this is crazy and I'm out of here. Well, you say every guy you brought home. So you are meeting guys. Yes. Mostly I didn't bring those ones home. Occasionally I would. And pretty much any of the ones I brought home were like, I'm out of here. (laughs) I I mean, I don't blame them. (laughs) 
because your mom wouldn't give them pie? Like, like what was they were just really intense. Like I can imagine. I mean, I think it's probably intense enough meeting the parents anyway, you know. There's a lot sure. of jokes around that. Sure, sure. A certain stigma. They like fit the bill of we're gonna grill you and who are you and what are your intentions? <laughs> We're curious to hear from our listeners. Do you have thoughts or reactions to something you heard in this episode? Or maybe you have an idea for grief, gratitude, and greatness and would like to share some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Links to contact us can be found in all the usual places. Or check the show notes. So at 26, how'd you get on on your own? Actually, it was my now husband that really was part of the impetus for that. He really took on my dad, which was probably why I fell in love with him, because nobody had ever done that before. I have this vivid memory. We went out to dinner with my parents. It was just like a hangout. I mean, he'd met them before. It was definitely not the first time he'd met. It was anything but casual. It turned into like... I. Both my husband and my dad, I would say, are generally calm, lighthearted people. And I thought they were going to start punching each other. (laughs) I wanted to crawl under the table. (laughs) It was so intense because basically my husband was like, this is ridiculous that your daughter lives at home. And like, you know, and my dad was like, no, it's not. My name is spelled with a -A K-A-H, which is kind of unusual. It's Hebrew. And they had a plaque on the wall growing up, you know, with my name and what it meant. And the meaning I grew up with was faithful servant. I'm definitely a helper. I have a lot of those characteristics of jumping in and being available to people. That's a heavy identity to be given. Faithful servant. Yeah. Were your parents hoping like, oh, right on this one, she's going to do all the (laughs) dishes. (laughs) She's going to vacuum for us, help with the gardening and... I think it was very intentional that I'd be helpful. I mean, hopefully that wasn't the only reason they picked it. But (laughs) as it turned out, I mean, I think I really did play into that meaning for a lot of years in my life and often to my own detriment, you know, overextending and getting lost in other people's agenda or voices, and particularly my mother's. I was shortly after I was 40 and maybe doing that midlife searching thing or whatever, but a new meaning to my name came to me, which was the brave one. In the moment, just kind of tucked it away. I wrote a couple lines in my journal. That was that. And I don't really think about it again for months. My sister asked me, like she does every year, you know, what I wanted for my birthday. And literally the first things out of my mouth were a red cape that says the brave one. And I turned around to see who was behind me, like whose voice was that. There's no way in hell that I want that. Like that is not me. That's not, you know, I'm not the person that wants to like stand out in a crowd. And so I promptly told her I wanted some dish towels and a sweater or something else and hoped that she didn't really hear, you know, that first comment. Later that night or as I was falling asleep or something, I kind of said to myself, okay, Rebecca, if she actually heard that and gets that for you, if she gets you a red cape, you have to wear it everywhere for a week. My own little promise to myself. And then promptly worried about it for a very long time. You know, I think it was like weeks to my birthday or something. I was like, oh, you know, what if she actually does that? And no, she won't. All that internal dialogue that we do with ourselves. 
So fast forward to my birthday. Sure enough, open the box. There's a red cape that says, doesn't just say like brave one. It's like the brave one. I don't know why I had to put the word the in there, but I did. So, and she looks at me and she's like, why do you want this? And I look back at her and I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) I actually don't want this. Oh, I put it on. We took some photos. We're like all laughing about it. And then I'm like leaving and going home and like, what is on my calendar for this week? Because like, where am I going to have to wear this now? Because I promised myself that I was going to do this thing. And so I looked over my calendar and thought, okay, fine. I That might be awkward or a little embarrassing, but it's fine. But there was one place in particular I really didn't want to wear it. And I was kind of like trying to figure out how I could get around wearing it there. What was that place? So I'd been boxing at a boxing academy for not very long, five months. <laughs> That's pretty rad. And you have kids, too. I do. I have four kids. <laughs> and you're a boxer. Yeah. It's kind of fun. And again, it's a, a place where legitimate boxers train. And I just kind of go in and do a workout. They all have their fight names, the fearless one, and all these great names that they have. I am not walking in there with a red cape that says the brave one. And I'm like, not even an amateur. I'm like below an amateur. <laughs> Like, You're a beginner. Ridiculous. So it was just funny the anxiety I had over wearing it there. And of course, they loved it, totally embraced it. We're super encouraging and we're actually part of the reason I kept on wearing it. So isn't that great? Because <laughs> I mean, it's part of it psychological. Like I think totally. about like Muhammad Ali and part of his whole thing was just psyching out his opponents, right? That's not beginner mentality at all. You walk in with this, the brave one with a cape and you're already, you know, putting I'm owning this. You're owning it and you're putting everyone on notice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's initially what it started out to be was just this very visible, tangible reminder that regardless of how I feel or how my day is going or the circumstances in my life, being brave at my core doesn't change. And I don't have to feel brave today or in a particular circumstance, but it doesn't mean that I'm not. That was the beauty of it initially, was having this physical thing to wrap around myself. This is who you are. Don't forget it, because we forget. We forget who we are sometimes. Well, it's really fascinating to me, too, because you're wearing it for you, not for others, Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely, yeah. However, you can't see what it says because Mm -hmm. it's on your back. Totally. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. People write things on their mirror in the bathroom Mm -hmm. or put little notes by their mirror so they can see it every day. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously capes in our culture have a certain persona or association, which is generally some sort of hero. And it's definitely not that for me. I think it's more ironically about being ordinary, even though I now obviously stand out because I'm wearing this bright red thing and people ask about it and... We often see children maybe running around in capes and we like smile because they're like inserting themselves into probably a superhero character or something. But that isn't really what it is for me. It really was about stepping into the ordinary places in my life and showing up and choosing to be present. And the ordinary stuff is often the really hard stuff, the stuff that we're tired of, we're over. It's not the adventure. I mean, I think especially when you're parenting. Mm. It's sometimes the hardest stuff is the easiest stuff, you know? Right. Because we can get excited about the one-off here and there that we get to do or something that's out of the ordinary, but the daily grind of getting kids ready for school or 
providing lunches or the fight that you're having, you know, for the 20,000th time with your partner. <laughs> and you're just yeah. like, I'm over this. But those are the things that really require us to the step up and stay in it. Right. And those are oftentimes, we'll have these great memories, maybe of a trip we took as a family or whatever. But when we look at the overall, how many years we're at home or in our family of origin, it's all the little moments that really are going to set this feeling. What was my home life like? Well, it was really chaotic or it was really fun or it was, you know, and it's those moments happen at the mealtime, at the getting ready for school, at the drive in the car to school, kind of those moments. When you got the cape, you made this commitment to yourself that you would wear it for a week. Yes. But you're still wearing this cape. Why did you decide to go beyond the first week? And then how long has it been? I've been wearing it two years and three months. I wore it for the week and I started on Monday, ended on Sunday, took it off, congratulated myself, (laughs) hung it on a hook, and went to boxing class Monday night. The instructor there, the main gal that runs the gym, said, you know, where's your cape? And I was like, oh, I promised myself I'd wear it for a week and the week ended and she was like, oh, okay. Was leaving. She yells across the gym as I'm walking out the door, bring back the cape. And I laughed. I'm like, ha. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it was the next day or anyway, in the next couple of days, I went and saw my weekly-ish session with my therapist. And she also, she's like, where's your cape? And she was super excited I was wearing it that first week. You know, I came in and she was all into it. So then this week she was like, wait, what's going on? You know, I kind of just said I was going to wear it for a week, and I did. And she, like, was really, like, I really think you need to keep wearing it, and I think it's powerful. We both stopped and looked at each other and started laughing because she's like, I don't do that. Like, my job is to, like, sit here and, like, encourage you and whatever. You know? <laughs> like, I was like, yeah, I think you were just preaching at me. <laughs> anyway, we kind of laughed because she was, like, so intense about me, like, keeping on wearing it. So I was, like, threw my hands in the air. I was like, fine, fine, I'll keep wearing it. <laughs> So yeah, so we went home and between the two of them kind of was like, all right, I'll just put it back on. You know, here we are talking Mm -hmm. about grief and Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how wearing this cape helps address your grief. How does it help you work through? Because I've been wearing the cape for such a long time now, kind of started as wearing my identity on my back and whether I felt like I was brave or not, like stepping into the hard places and you know, as I've continued to wear it, I feel like there's been these different seasons of different meanings for why I'm wearing it. I mean, obviously the core of the idea stays the same, but, yeah, you know, when I started wearing the cape, maybe I'd only been in therapy for about five months with this particular gal. And, you know, we were kind of just starting to scratch the surface of childhood trauma and different things. You know, I start wearing the cape and we start deep diving into more of that my story and how it's impacted me and shaped me. I really felt like the cape then became this kind of security blanket that wrapped around me to say, I've got you, you're protected, you're going to be okay. It was like this comforting, you know, Linus in his blanket, tangible thing that I got to wear as an adult to, again, just kind of remind me, yeah, this is hard. You don't want to do this. A lot of days, like, you don't want to go there and you don't want to have these emotions and you don't want to have to dig up this stuff. Really think about how it's impacted you. But it just gave me this reminder again, like, you can do this. You are brave. You're capable of walking through these different 
fires or circumstances. And so, yeah, it was this sweet gift that I, mm-hmm. again, could have never imagined. If you'd said, oh, Rebecca, you're going to wear this thing that's going to be this comforting thing to you. I would have laughed. I would have just thought, what? Like, that doesn't make sense. But it kind of became that. If you'd like to support our work with grief, gratitude, and greatness, consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Your support allows us to deliver conversations that help to dissolve the stigma and evolve our culture around grief. You'll find a link to contribute via Patreon in the show notes. And if you have a business that supports people who are listening to our show, let's talk about how you can sponsor an episode or two or three. A lot of times when we have trauma, historic trauma, you know, we're afraid to visit it. We just want to push that pain away, right? Mm -hmm. But we know that subverting our pain only allows it to fester. And so by wearing the cape, you're saying it's safe to go there. It's safe to recognize it, observe what you've been through. You're also, it sounds to me like you're comforted by knowing how far you've come. I also like the idea by wearing the cape, you're taking ownership of your own identity and not accepting the assigning of a meaning to the name that you're born with. Do you sleep with the cape? I don't sleep with the cape. I actually don't wear it at home, which I probably should because that's the place that we often, I think, in a lot of ways have to be the most brave. I think it would be really gross and dirty at this point if I wore it at home. So I have I have it on a hook with basically my purse and my keys. So anytime I leave the house, it goes on. You know, they are younger. My oldest, like I said, is 12. And so maybe if they were teenagers, they might not be so down with mom showing up at their games or school and a cape. But they have really embraced it. And my daughter in particular, anytime she writes me a note, it's always addressed the brave one. Oh. Occasionally, if I forget to wear it or for whatever reason, leave the house without it, you know, they're the first to be like, mom, where's your cape? So I think it's been sweet to see that it's impacting them. You know, I'll be curious to hear their stories as adults, maybe about their mom running around town in a cape, (laughs) how they they actually end up viewing it. The other thing I love about the cape, it was an opening to have a conversation Mm. about your childhood trauma just your evolution and your process for healing. I'm all about coming out of the closet with your pain and loss and Mm -hmm. trauma and grief. How often do you find that it is a opening for conversation? Do you feel like you get more looks from people like, hmm, or do you feel like it's more of a, hey, I'm curious, let's talk about this. What What are you noticing? I think mostly people are curious. I mean, granted, We live in Portland, so maybe if I lived in the Midwest, it would be a lot more awkward or a different reaction. But people generally, I feel like, are very curious or welcoming. You know, certain type of people are going to ask about it, and other people will see you a hundred times and never say anything. Just last night, I had downtown, and some young guy was like, do you wear that all the time? I was like, I do, you know, and that was that. Like, we both went on a race, and then other times it sparks a much longer conversation. But I think... That's been, again, one of these secondary blessings of the cape. I couldn't have planned or had the foresight to be like, oh, if I wear this cape, this is going to happen, is that it has really encouraged me to pause. I don't need to be in a hurry. Getting dinner on the table 30 minutes later, 
okay, maybe the kids are melting down because they're hungry, but it's not the end of the world. (laughs) I think our culture has become such that we don't give ourselves a lot of time and space to stop and have conversations with people randomly. Yeah. So I now know that if I walk into the grocery store, I might not just walk in and get those three items that I went in for. I might get asked about my cape and I might stop and I might have a one minute conversation or I might have a 10 minute conversation or I might not have any conversations. You know, like I may just get those three things and it might be a quick in and out, but I don't know. And that in some ways makes it fun. And I just, again, get to stop and look somebody in the eye and like Mm -hmm. connect with them. Um, I love that. I've only maybe very rarely had somebody be like, huh, and like kind of walk away, maybe just like, I don't know, judging or whatever. But mostly everybody's just like, that's amazing or thank you or I I am having a better day now or I just so appreciate that, your story. You know, like it's 95% of the time positive feedback. So, of course, that blesses me and encourages me. and And then I feel like I've also passed that to them. And I've, you know, a few people that we've connected over the Cape and now we are friends and we hang out. (laughs) That's awesome. You you know, I think I would have never met that person because we were just washing our hands in the bathroom. And you might at best have said hi to that person. Maybe. I mean, when do you anticipate or when do you know it'll be time to retire the Cape? Oh, man. (laughs) Not that that I'm suggesting you ever should. Right. There's times when I'm like, okay, I just... Do you want to go to the grocery store and run in and out and not stick out or whatever? So my one girlfriend says that I can't stop wearing the cape until I have an outline for my book. Yeah. So that's one marker, potentially. I don't know. I think maybe in the same sense that it was kind of this whimsical, not premeditated thing that maybe it'll also be kind of one of those where I'll just be like, okay, like it's served its purpose in this season and I can take it off now and and still be wearing it. I think I'll always be wearing it now that I've worn it for this long, you know, even if it's not the actual visible, tangible red cape. May come to a point where it gets pulled out on special occasions or something. <laughs> <laughs> or or I may get buried in it. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> it's impressively stood up very well for having been worn this much. I know. Yeah. That was it looks never... pretty great. Yeah. Apparently it's a tablecloth. <laughs> oh, it's made from tablecloth yeah. material. <laughs> it's perfect because it's definitely had its share of snot wiped on it and <laughs> Other lovely gifts from your children. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Tears. <laughs> you know, what if what if there was a way we were all allowed to like let our true identities be so visible? We can look at a person and there's a lot that we'll assume based on appearance. And yeah. What if we had to have our true identities on our back and treat that person out of that name? I think it just would be interesting to get to interact with a person from the get-go based on that, maybe. And obviously what it tells us about that person. Like, you know, I mean, not everybody can wear a cape around, and that's fine. I'm glad, you know, I get this kind of funny opportunity. It wouldn't do what it's doing for me for everybody. It would be probably a great source of anxiety for some people, you know. But what if they could wear whatever it was that they knew that they were at their core in some way that people would like interact with them initially in that space? And I think of, you know, one of my favorite questions to ask people 
when I do get the opportunity to have a little bit more lengthy conversation, maybe about why I'm wearing a cape, is that, you know, the question of what would their cape say on the back if they were wearing one? And that that's just really specific for every person. It's different. Right. And a lot of people don't know. Some people can answer instantly with what they want to own about themselves or who they are. My one friend is like, mine would say wild poet. And, Mm. you know, and just like what that says about her and like such beautiful imagery that gets to go with that. And I'm not not looking at her hair or skin color or her vocation. That true identity piece isn't about, it's not about being a mom. It's not about being a wife or a daughter. It's about this thing at the center of us that can't be changed. Grief, Gratitude, and Greatness is a production of Recursive Delete Audiovisual in Portland, Oregon. This episode was produced and edited by Jack Saturn and me, Sarah Shaul. The music was by Samantha Jensen. Visit us online at griefgratitudegreatness.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at griefgratitudegreat. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a review. Your feedback helps our show and helps us find new listeners. If you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or topics you'd like to hear more about, we'd love to hear from you. Call or text our show at 503-454-6646 or send us a message via the contact link at griefgratitudegreatness.com. Be sure to let your friends know about us and join us next time. We look forward to sharing more conversations with you.